Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need to start preparing kids for, you know, what problem do you want to solve versus what is it that you want to be? From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. On the show today, another take on the big question of, can science speak person? With the incredible Bridget Chapital, founder and director of, and I just love saying this name, Hypothesis Haven Science Club. Just saying that makes me feel smarter. HHSC, as it's known because of acronyms, is a next-gen educational program for kids aged 5 to 13 that inspires more critical thinking in our youth, something I think we could use with our adults these days, but I digress. You know, seeing as how the odds are definitely stacked against the average person being able to navigate the healthcare system process, Bridget's background in health science and clinical research make her the perfect person to apply the lessons she's learned from children and translate them into startup culture and the healthcare system writ large, especially in the world of trials. Answering the age-old question that I started at the top, can science speak person? I'd like to believe so, and maybe we'll learn if that's possible today. Are you smarter than a fifth grader? Let's find out. Enjoy the show. Bridget, thank you so much for coming on Out of Patience. Um, it's been a long time coming. I got to know you very recently, and we have so much in common and so much to talk about. But I first want to level set the conversation by let's bitch a bit about COVID and back to school, because you have three and I have two. And are you a red, white, or rosé kind of girl? Actually, neither. I am more of a vodka drinker, but <laughs> I recently <laughs> recently had to stop that. But you know, it really hasn't been that bad for us because we um, are in a suburb of Houston. So there's lots of different school districts around here. Um, we initially were supposed to start August 17th. Probably the week before that, we found out it would be pushed back to August the 24th. And then from there, they decided that they would start online instead of in person. And so, um, as you know, Houston was a bit of a hot spot for COVID. I think sometimes it does kind of get lumped in. I mean, Texas is a huge state and people just say, oh, it's, you know, Texas is so bad. But people have been really responsible uh, for the most part here in town. And so the rates are, are, are decreasing. And um, two of our kids were actually able to go back to school face to face probably a couple of weeks ago. But we still have one that um, is in a school that decided to hold off until mid-October, which is where the majority of schools in this area are probably going back. So, you know, I'm not going to lie, the online piece was really difficult because I have a kindergartner, third grader, and fifth grader. So the girl, my girls are the older two, and they were pretty decent. You know, my 10-year-old, you know, I heard her teacher telling her, you've been late to class three times. And I'm like, at the at the dining table, I don't 
You know, I don't understand. <laughs> <Yeah>. what, <it's, laughs> how, how did this happen? So, you know, she had to take the headphones off so I can hear what's going on. My third grader is very responsible. So she was able to keep up with her, her classes, but my kindergartner, he just, it was just, it, it was just torture. I mean, we're bringing him back to the iPad uh, like several times a day, several times an hour. And I think where it went wrong is the teacher taught him how to turn off the camera in Zoom. And so I just don't understand why that had to be, you know, why that, why did you teach them that? Because now you're texting me like he's turned his camera off. He's not. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's like Bad he idea. didn't know how to do that until you taught him, you know. And so it was kind of tough. And I, I think that if for some reason schools do close down again, the girls can probably continue with the online. But my son will probably just pull him and do like a traditional homeschool model and not really stick with what the district is offering. But other than that, it's it's been OK. Every morning we the two that go face to face, we do, you know, the temperature checks. We have to fill out an app that tells the school how they're doing. They wear masks. You know, they're, they have kind of modified class sizes. And so, so far, it's, it seems to be going okay. What about you? Yeah. As of this taping, you're way more well off than we are here in New York City. Oh, really? And this is the third week in a row they've continued to delay the hybrid back to school model. And, you know, depending on when the show airs, we may still be hybrid here in New York with 1.1 million kids. And it's just, it's only chaos. And my wife's a teacher. And oh, really? they, they were told, you still have to go into the school. And we promise it's clean. So what happens the hmm. day she shows up in the school? It's a shit sty. So, <sighs> like, thank you for that level of appreciation for the health and wellness of our teachers here in New York oh, City. Wow. So, anyway, I digress because, like, it's just... We need our venting sessions. I'm more of a bourbon guy than a vodka guy. My dad's the vodka guy, but I completely appreciate <laughs> that that is your your uh, your potable of choice. Yeah, I just kind of feel like you know, I, there's only so many glasses of wine I can drink. That yeah. just the vodka just gets it, you know. <laughs> but I mean, speaking of children, I was really enthralled to meet you. I think it was through TJ. Is that how we initially? Met? Uh, was it on? I think it was on LinkedIn. Oh. So probably commenting on somebody's. Right. Oh yes, actually yes, yeah. I think I, I ran into TJ's profile and then I, I, I commented on some things there. Yes. And then the mutual stalking began, and I'm enamored <laughs> with your work because you know for what you do, I was. It's there's such. I mean, we're gonna get into it, but what inspired me the most about what you do is, and I'm just gonna read this verbatim because I make things too complicated. Is you're the founder and director of Hypothesis Haven Science Club, which sounds super cool without a description, but it's an educational program for kids that explores life science careers and teaches the steps that scientists take to discover, prevent, and treat illness. Now that sounds like something for college, and yet. You've mastered this incredible program for children between 5 and 13. And I feel like we're going to get into what that looks like and how it works. But there are people in their 40s that need this. So, oh, right. <laughs> so <laughs> what, what drove you into this level of pediatric pedagogy in science? So in college, I, I majored in health science. And so basically, you know, whenever I tell people that they're always like, okay, what the heck is that? Like, what what were you trying to do with that? And the honest answer is probably I, I really did not know at the time. Uh, I knew that I really liked science. I didn't necessarily know what that would look like. I am first generation Nigerian. So of course, you know, you can only be like a doctor, a nurse, uh, <laughs> an engineer, a lawyer, you know, these are <laughs> sort of the careers that are acceptable. And so, you know, I didn't necessarily know that I wanted to be a physician, but I did know that I wanted to be 
um, you know, medicine adjacent or somewhere in that field. So after graduating college, um, I moved to Houston and, um, you know, Houston has just, it's sort of like the Mecca basically of, um, you know, the medical that we have the Texas medical center here. It's a really big, um, medical campus. And so, you know, I just figured if there's something that I can do in the medical field, I, I can do it in Houston, you know, kind of almost like a, you know, you can make it here. You know? Right. Right. Uh, sorry, like the New York of Texas. Right. So, yep. Well done. So I moved here and, <laughs> and I sort of just, um, fortunately fell into the clinical research world. Um, it's not anything that I even knew about while I was in school, but it was a field and, and specifically um, oncology research. It was a field that really felt natural to me. I really took to it. I learned so much. It was extremely fascinating. And then I just kind of continued my career throughout that. And it came to a certain point where, you know, sort of my roots and my really wanting to be a resource that helps people to understand this process and understand this new world that I had discovered, but that really wasn't getting um, as much, I guess, attention. I mean, right now, I think it's really commonplace to turn on the news and we're talking about the FDA and clinical trials and, you know, vaccine trials and phase one, phase two, all these different terms that are pretty familiar now. But, um, you know, back then, and even probably maybe, what, 10 months ago, those weren't really like common terms that the public was really aware of. And so it sort of became my goal to sort of um, mentor um, high school and college students about the field, you know, go back to my college and, you know, tell other people that were like me and not really know what they wanted to do with their medical-ish background, you know, that there's actually, you know, a whole industry out here that you can be a part of. And so, you know, I ended up going back and getting a master's in health education. And I naturally just thought that there would be some opportunity where my clinical research background and my health education focus would naturally come together. And, you know, that just actually never really happened. And so, you know, I just kind of kept on that same path, you know, climbing the career ladder. And at a certain point, I was like, you know what, if this is going to happen, it hasn't happened naturally, I need to make it happen. And so um, with that, you know, I kind of looked at how there was a lot of programs out there for, you know, high school students, college students to sort of learn about basic science and the whole um, like drug and device development process. But there really wasn't a space like that for children. And this was sort of the early, well, maybe like the mid 2000s where STEM started to become like this huge buzzword. And you have kids, so you probably, yeah. you know, it's STEM this, STEM that. Yeah. Exactly. It's going to make them just like the most wonderful person in the universe if they, you <laughs> the know. The cure to intelligence is STEM, yes. Exactly. And so, you know, but as a parent and a medical professional, um, when I was looking for programs for my children, I was just noticing like these very diluted programs that would teach kids, you know, to follow the steps to make volcanoes or slime or, you know, things like that. But they were really focusing on helping kids to become scientific minded and, you know, I think that if you would ask a kid, what does a scientist look like? They're thinking of like this, you know, crazy guy with glasses in the lab making potions. And right. that, you know, was not anything at all like what the scientists that I worked with every day were like. And so um, from there, we decided to start um, Hypothesis Haven Science Club. And it's more of a health science program um, that provides just exposure, like you said, to life science careers. And we're really teaching them the steps that scientists are taking as they're discovering and treating and curing um, different illnesses. Just the idea of creating almost like um, questioning everything when you're already a wild-eyed, curious child beyond the, I would say, the realm or the shackles of the school system is always so necessary. My daughters learn more about the Kuiper Belt from YouTube 
than anything <laughs> at school could have taught her. So there's exactly. there's such an intrigue here. Again, as a as a, a father of of ten year olds that are very curious and looking for things beyond the school, the extramural stuff. STEM is an acronym that means whatever it means to your district. But you're creating right. this extended, expanded Marvel Cinematic Universe, literally a universe, <laughs> to inspire that idea of, I think the word you use, innovative thinkers, right? Kids are already yes. naturally incubating as innovative thinkers, but how do, you, how do you galvanize and capture that? So you've been doing this a while. What's your experience been like? What have you seen tangibly? Are we creating the next generation of not maybe Rick and Morty, Doc Browns, but actual scientists? <laughs> well, so the thing about it, too, is that um, we think about ourselves as health science ambassadors. But really, you know, the future is going to need scientists, going to need engineers, problem solvers, innovators of all stripes. Right. So, um, you know, our programs just try to set in place that innovation mindset and scientific thinking skills that are necessary to solve any of the world's um, problems, not necessarily just um, in medicine. So these are transferable skills. Once you can um, take the steps to like identify a problem, um, ask a question, form a hypothesis, you know, kind of go through those steps, test it, you know, it's the scientific method, yes, but these are steps actually that you could use, you know, for any process or across any industry. So, you know, that's sort of the lane that we're in. But, you know, we do this by having these really fun, live, interactive workshops where we're, you know, really just trying to solve medical mysteries and, you know, help kids, you know, really kind of learn how to think versus what to think, which I think is a lot of what they're usually taught in schools. You know, you have to learn this, you have to learn that, you know, you got to pass this standardized test. And so, you know, really trying to help them think outside of the box, um, but in a way that, you know, really kind of builds on some of the subjects that they're also, you know, already learning in schools. So let me ask you a basic question. I know actually basic these days is a bad word to use, but I'm going to use it anyway and just channel my inner Gen Xer. And I'm sorry about that. But what does innovation actually mean to you? Well, that is a good question. So basically, innovation to us just means really thinking in terms of the present and future and not so much thinking about the past. Uh, I mean, I think that when you are talking to kids and really trying to come up with things, we kind of fall into the habit of asking them questions like, well, what do you want to be when you grow up and and things like that. But in actuality, there is a huge mismatch between um, young people's ideas of what they're going to do when they grow up or what the labor market or what jobs are going to be like when they grow up and the actual realities. I mean, you know, there's so much automation going on and new technologies that are coming online. But um, I believe there was a study that high school students that they asked um, in the year 2017 still wanted to do the sort of dream jobs that high school students back in like the early 2000s were saying would be their dream job. And I mean, if nothing else, like an Instagram influencer <laughs> wasn't even, right. you know, a, a thing in the early 2000s, but, you know, they still pick very traditional jobs. And it's, it's a situation where we really need to start preparing kids for, you know, what problem do you want to solve versus what is it that you want to be? I mean, there's a scary list of like the top 10 global threats um, <laughs> that there are right now. And, and the funny thing is coronavirus really actually isn't quite on that list which is sort of scary, but, you know, um, climate change, um, food insecurity, there are all these sorts of, of problems that have been around for a very long time. And, you know, if we're going to be able to solve those problems, we're really going to need to start training children to think and to respond in different ways than we have before. And so 
to me, that's, you know, what being able to be an innovative thinker is to kind of think outside the box and come up with ideas that have not been thought of before and not just continue to do things because that's what we've always done. Back with our guest after the break. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Picking up on what you said just before, I had asked my son, not my daughter and her Kuiper Belt wisdom, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, a YouTuber. And I said, no. Oh, wow. You're not. And, and I, I want to just go back to like, remember the far side, that cartoon by Gary Larson in the 80s and 90s? It was like the most, Google it, kids. <laughs> you know? okay. But there was one cartoon. Oh, I do. Yes. It had the random, like, ironic, yes. Yeah, it was I awesome and sardonic and perfect and unique. Yes. And there was one that was out where it was a parent um, reading a newspaper wanted section with his kid in the background playing like Space Invaders on an Atari or whatever. And the wanted said... Looking for kids who can get a million points in Space Invaders, highly paid job. <laughs> it's like any parent's nightmare is a job. Come be a YouTuber and make all the money you exactly. want. Exactly. But I love right. that you said before, what problem do you want to try and solve? And it's not what or to use in Minecraft. I <laughs> want to channel our conversation we had on the phone like two or three weeks ago where we talk about you know all these syllables and all these words and trials and whatnot. And in, in, in adult land, where you can't possibly have all of this academic wisdom at your beck and call, who translates that down to make sure you know what's happening to you and answer the age-old question that keeps coming up on my show, can science speak person? Right. Well, so, you know, right now there is such an absence of science information that regular everyday people can access. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why we're seeing so much misinformation and confusion, uh, you know, about the coronavirus. And, you know, it stems from the fact that, so I come from a world, so in academia, where our audience is other scientists, other medical professionals, um, you know, our work is being published in protocols and, and journals, um, and that's sort of our audience that we're going to to explain new discoveries. And um, 
There was a colleague of mine that, you know, gave a talk where she mentioned that by the time that your average MD or your average scientist has finished their um, education, they have learned basically the equivalent of a whole new different language. So all these terms, all the jargon, you know, it's basically like medicalese. And so when they bring that and they try to communicate with just average person, it's kind of the equivalent of, you know, they're over here speaking French and, and we speak English, like there's a disconnect. And so it's really important to build bridges of understanding between the scientific community and the public. But so how do you do that? Well, you know, number one, they need to sort of understand how the public takes in information. Um, It's funny, like my um, oldest, my 10 year old, she's sort of um, reminds me when you're describing your daughter, she's one of these kids that, you know, like Encyclopedia Brown, she's like the black female version of that. (laughs) Oh my God. That's the best yeah, throwback. So, yeah, so it's a little girl version of that. And so, you know, she can just spit out any sort of fact about anything. Like we went to the Arboretum with some friends the other day. And 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 so my friend was there with her kids and she mentioned something about a bird. And then, you know, my daughter is giving like the genus and the species and this and that. And it's like, she's just spitting out all these facts. <laughs> kind of not even, we weren't even asking for these facts. And so one of the things that we try to work on with her is before people care how much you know, they need to know how much you care. And it's sort of, you know, kind of like a cliche thing, but it, it's really true. And I think it applies to scientists. You know, it's it's not enough just to come out, you know, with your degrees and your, you know, sort of alphabet suit behind your name and, and say, you know, I've studied this and this is why it's important. Right. So when you're dealing with the public, you know, you really have to let them know that you care before they can even in get in the right headspace to engage with what it is that you're trying to say. And so that's why I think that people really resonated with people like uh, a Tony Fauci that, you know, kind of has that New Yorker kind of grandfatherly, you know, that gruff voice that's real recognizable. And he's just, you know, coming straight out with, with this information that you pay attention to. Um, and then another good person that I've seen is Peter Hotez. I think that I talked with you about that, you know, he's sitting here in this office with this bow tie looking very professional, but then he's like hitting the panning button pretty much like in every (laughs) single inter, you know? Yeah, And so it's kind of like, it catches your attention. And so I think when you see people that really have a personal stake in what they're saying, that resonates. But for the rest of scientists that, you know, sort of are behind the bench or they're in the lab, you know, I think, it's a matter of whether you're talking about terms, whether you call it health communication, public health, science communication, health education, like whatever you want to call it. You know, we really need to take a cue from marketing professionals and really know how to tell a story and how to really kind of package this information in ways that resonate with people. Uh, it also depends on who the messenger is. You know, if you're trying to reach certain communities, you might want to find people scientists who are in those communities that really know how to talk the talk and really make those connections with people. But, you know, I really think it comes back to just a different way of thinking about how scientists um, are going to engage with different audiences. It's not enough just to sit back and publish your journals and and do your work um, and let that be sort of the kind of marker of whether you're successful in your career, but really being able to make a difference and make an impact on an everyday level, especially with something as um, something as uh, impactful as the coronavirus that's, you know, affecting so many people. It really um, would be, I think, just a no brainer to have, 
you know, different scientists from within that community really kind of step forward and be more visible and really just sort of share exactly what it is they're doing um, so that the public can know about it and also just to get that trust of the public so that they can feel more comfortable and do the things that we need people to do in order to sort of get this situation under control. I read a horrible article statistic today and that I'll reference it in the episode description that 90% of the children who've died from coronavirus were in black and brown communities. And that is, I mean, there is no acceptable death of children under any circumstances, but that is egregiously exposing the ebb tide of how income inequality and outcomes and disparities gravely affect whatever happens to you. And these aren't, this isn't a patient story. This is just an American citizen story channeling what you said, who's the messenger we say social determinants of health, right? That's our jargon, S-D-O-H, right. right? A determinant of health should not be your skin color. And this is something that may or may not be preventable and messaging and who's delivering that to the communities. Do you have any good news anecdotes about better or successful messaging to communities that may not be as receptive as others to scientific messaging? I think what it really boils down to is just being able to gain that trust. So uh, I know that there are, you know, a few efforts out there, not nearly enough, um, and especially like here in Houston, where, you know, we have such a prominent, um, you know, medical center. I, I feel like there's not really that many efforts being made. But, you know, back to your question of, of who could be the messenger, I mean, there are there are certain um scientists frontline. I think we talked about like a Kazmikia Corbett, for example, is somebody that's kind of caught my eye as somebody who is, you know, a 30 something, um, you know, black woman. She's a lead scientist um, for the NIH coronavirus task force. And, you know, somebody kind of speaks my language. I follow her on Twitter. She talks about Beyonce, you know, I mean, everybody, <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? So people like that. But I think that's something that become sort of the narrative is that, you know, um, people in the black community are fearful because of a Tuskegee. And it's like, well, you know, if you ask the average, you know, 20 something, 30 something, you know, person, you know, black person about Tuskegee, they don't necessarily know what that is, but they do know that, you know, large institutions, you know, are not necessarily always the most trustworthy. Um, and the medical community, you know, sort of falls under that umbrella. They do know that if you're a sickle cell patient that's in a crisis and you go to the ER, that you're likely to get turned away because they think that you're an addict who's seeking pills. And so it's just these sort of everyday experiences that communities of color have that lead to that distrust. And so I think one of the, the things that I've been seeing that a lot of, uh, uh, people in the health space have been saying is it's racism, not race versus when we used to say race is like a determinant of this and that. No, it's racism. Right. So um, I think it's the same thing when you when you talk about the, those communities being able to engage in, in clinical research in a way. I mean, this, there's just a distrust of any sort of large institution in this country, unfortunately, that, you know, you have to depend on them. We don't leave our, you know, family members typically in the hospital alone. And so you see a lot of that with COVID where, you know, the hospitals are closing down and you can't visit your family members. I mean, there's just a lot of distrust there that, you know, will take a lot of intentional efforts to break. And I don't necessarily know that there's one person that could make that change, but, you know, there are certainly like community-based 
participatory programs that, you know, could sort of, you know, make it a difference where you're actually going in the community and using people from the community, whether that's churches, whether that's community centers, you know, just to really, or whether it's just physicians that come from those communities that can make a difference. I agree with everything you said 100% because the odds are always stacked against the average person when they have to enter you know, I, I would say like the, the bad things happen to good people store or the shit happens to her. I'll just be honest, <laughs> you know, and, and yes. the recurring theme is that when you enter the, the shit happens store, there's no one there to welcome you and say, it's okay to be here. I'm going to hold your hand and get you there, especially if you're in a rural community or from it, it, your, your zip code determines the level of potential greeter in that store. Exactly. I know you're not a virologist, but in the interest of you know, doubling down on this notion of trust and distrust in that sense. You know, we're in like vaccine land. And just again, as of this taping today, the CDC put out that we're not going to have anything viable of a vaccine until at least a year from now. And then on the other side, we're hearing, oh, it'll be out in, you know, three months or whatever. But in terms of adoptability and trust, do you have a sort of a, a quick retort on where you think that is going to land in the ears of the average American? Well, I mean, I think that there's such a big push against vaccines and and there's, you know, it's really unfortunate that it's become, even before the coronavirus, just the whole vaccine thing is just kind of like a hot button issue that boggles my mind that it's it's even a thing. But you know, I, one thing I do know is that if we are going to be able to get people to take a vaccine when it does become available, you know, we do really do need to gain that trust back, you know, and we're already kind of, you know, behind the eight ball on it because just in a regular times, people don't necessarily want to take a vaccine. And so now we're really wanting to push it. And then when you look at kind of the climate and how it's been politicized, you know, that kind of gives people even more pause. But, you know, ultimately, I think just returning to the science, which is something that, you know, is really kind of on the forefront when we are dealing with programs with hypothesis haven, you know, we're just going back to the science. Um, it's all about how you frame things. You know, if we're explaining something, you know, complicated to children, for example, um, you want to give it to them in a plain, matter of fact way. Um, there's different resources that are out there, but really just kind of framing the information in the way that you want people to interpret it, but it is going to take, you know, credible sources. Um, it's going to take, you know, real scientists and real people that are involved in the research. Now, I saw this morning, um, there was a, a physician, um, a, a Black woman that actually volunteered for COVID trials and had done kind of an interview tour where she was just talking about it and her reasons. Her father had died from coronavirus and he was a, a research scientist. And, you know, just really kind of humanizing it and personalizing it, I think, makes the biggest impact because we're really sort of trying to wage this battle of public opinion almost when really... You know, science is, is true wherever, whether you believe it or not. And so, you know, I think it is going to take sort of looking into those different avenues of really trying to craft the message. You know, whoever came up with like flatten the curve, I think was just a genius. Whoever came up, you know, when we were kids and that, you know, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs, like with the frying pan and the eggs, like something like that, that just really helps to sort of really crystallize in people's minds, you know, exactly like what's at stake here and, and what needs to be done. I got to tell you, this is 
and like my my brain hurts just because <laughs> like I like to be the dumbest guy in the room when I have great conversations with people, and this is no exception to that rule. Although I <laughs> I do want to say. Uh, that this is the first time ever on any show I've ever done where we brought up Encyclopedia Leroy Brown. So kudos to you <laughs> for that epic Funny. 80s childhood throwback. Uh, Bridget Chapital is the founder and director of Hypothesis Haven Science Club, proving that you can actually make science talk person. And children are the best example of how to make that work in grownups. Thank you so much for coming on Out of Patience. Thank you for having me. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com. <laughs>